Good evening. You know, any discussion about the greatest football coach of all time has to include Bill Belichick. Not that I'm happy about that, don't care anything about the New England Patriots, but if you're going to talk about who's the greatest football coach of all time, he's got to be in the discussion. Many people think he is the greatest of all time when it comes to coaching football. He's won six Super Bowls, been to nine, 72% winning percentage in the postseason, three-time coach of the year in the NFL. But the critics will tell you there's one thing he's not good at. It's drafting. That's the stain on his record. He's not a good evaluator of talent, apparently. He doesn't draft well. Still, it's kind of ironic when you consider that he has developed players who weren't supposed to be very good and got the most out of them. And I think it just goes to show that even if you're the best at something, you're still not perfect. And that's what this series has really been all about. We took a break from it for a little while as Blake and I talked about the uncomfortable topic of sexuality. But now we're back for another couple of weeks to finish out this series on the Hall of Flaw. When one reads through the story of Gideon, it's easy to form the opinion, perhaps, that God is not a good talent evaluator. Of course, Gideon isn't the only one. You read through Scripture and you find people like David and Peter and Moses and Jeremiah and a host of others. It seems that God drafted people who didn't have a lot of talent for a mission that maybe they weren't suited for. But of course, God knew exactly what he was doing, and he coached them up so that they accomplished things that were beyond anything that they ever thought they could achieve. And when God first calls Gideon, we see that this man displays none of the characteristics of a leader or a hero. He's not fearless. He's not brave. He's not courageous. He's not charismatic. By no means is he a valiant warrior. In fact, he's the polar opposite of all those things. Yet notice what the angel of the Lord says to him as he greets him. The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Valiant warrior? It's a bit of a reach, isn't it? That would be like calling me, well, a valiant warrior. That seems like a bit of an overreach. But the story of Gideon runs deeper than appearances. With God, it's never about the superficial. God saw what Gideon could be if he placed his full faith and trust in him. May not have been a valiant warrior yet, but that is a title that he would gain if he went all in with God. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Gideon, but if you're not, you might want to close your ears because I'm about to give away the ending. But with God behind him, Gideon would pull off one of the greatest, if not the greatest, upset in the history of the world. Bigger than North Carolina State beating Houston in the 1983 Basketball National Championship. Bigger than Appalachian State beating Michigan 15 years ago in football. Bigger than Villanova beating Georgetown. Bigger than any of the biggest upsets that you can recall. Victory would come not only through defeating the Midianites, but in the transformation of Gideon's character as well. With God's help, Gideon would undergo a complete transformation. He would be transformed from a coward into a conqueror and give hope to wimps everywhere who said, I'm not strong enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not qualified. But before we go any further, let's set the scene. Due to disobedience, Israel is under oppression. 
of the 350 years between the death of Joshua until Samuel, about 100 years were spent in disloyalty to God. The books of Judges and 1 Samuel present 15, and I quote, deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. This is a theme that we find over and over again in Scripture. You have exile, repentance, deliverance, disobedience, exile, repentance, deliverance. We see this cycle play out time and time again, and it's a cycle that will continue to play out until Jesus comes back and ends the exile once and for all. In the meantime, God raises up deliverers who resemble a Messiah or the Messiah, but they're not quite him. Over and over again, you see deliverers take center stage who have some of the characteristics of the Messiah, but not completely. They are shadows or forerunners or prototypes of the one who is to come. And there are two verses that sum up everything that is going on at this time. Sums it up better than I ever could. Two verses that you may be going to in your minds right now. You know what I'm talking about. The first one is in Judges chapter 2 and verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and another generation rose up after them who did not know the Lord, nor even the work which he had done for Israel. So while Joshua is in charge, Israel served God. But apparently, after he died, there was no one to take up the mantle of spiritual leadership. No one stepped up to say, hey, remember how we got here? Remember what Joshua did for us? And even before that, remember you know, the, the parting of the Red Sea? Remember our deliverance from Egypt? Remember all those things? So as people always do when God is no longer in the picture, they rebelled. And because of their rebellion, God handed them over to their enemies. But God didn't give up on his people. We see that he has a plan, and he raised up judges to deliver them so that they could live in peace once again. However, when the judge died, God's people would always resort to their default setting, which was disobedience, rebellion. And that brings me to the second verse that sums up everything that was going on during this time, and it's found in chapter 17, uh, or yeah, chapter 17, verse 6 of Judges, which reads, In those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, technically, there was a king in Israel, right? It was God. The people had the greatest king that they could have ever hoped for in the Almighty. Yet they turned their back on him and they wanted to be like the other nations around them. God tried to warn them that that wasn't a great idea. And yet they begged and begged until God gave them exactly what they wanted, but not what they needed. As a result, Israel is mired in a vicious cycle of their own creation. In fact, the book of Judges records seven cycles involving sin, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. It's a sad state of affairs when you consider that the book of Joshua ends with so much anticipation. And the last chapter of Joshua looks forward to continued blessing for God's people living in the promised land. But we don't get too far into the book of Judges before we see things are a complete mess and Israel failed to learn from their mistakes. So when God raised up judges to deliver the people, the Israelites would respond selfishly. They didn't serve God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. When things shaped up for them, they quickly abandoned God and returned to their default setting. They weren't seeking long-term wholesale change. They simply went about business as usual until they got themselves in dire straits, and then they cried out to God 
to save them from their self-created mess. And it's amid this setting that God calls a zero to be a hero. And Gideon's story picks up in Judges chapter 6, and it's where we learn that the Midianites had been tormenting and terrorizing the Israelites for seven years. The Midianites were a nomadic people who would wait for the Israelites to plant their crops, and then when it was harvest time, the Midianites would sweep in, steal their crops, take their livestock, and kill anything that they couldn't take with them. Kind of like the movie The Bugs, A Bug's Life. You remember that movie several years ago, A Bug's Life? You, know, you had the ants that worked so hard, so hard to, to store up crops for themselves, and then the locusts would come in, the grasshoppers would come in and steal it from them. That, that's kind of what's going on here with Israel and the Midianites. After seven years of having the enemy steal what they worked so hard for, they were more than fed up. And so they cry out to God for deliverance. And God responds by calling a most unlikely candidate. Let's read Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did the Lord not bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. And the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this strength of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? But he said to him, O Lord, how am I to save Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. Yet the Lord said to him, I will certainly be with you, and you will defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then perform for me a sign that it is you speaking with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Now, our first impression of Gideon is anything but a valiant warrior. He is beating out wheat in a wine press. That's significant. Have you ever seen a wine press? It's a small circular ditch about five feet in diameter. He was beating out his wheat in this wine press. That wine press was used to stomp out grapes. The juice was retrieved to make wine. You think about how long it would take to beat out wheat in a wine press. Typically, even today in, in Israel, the, the, the wheat is taken out, it's laid on a large slab or flat surface, and it's beat out and then tossed in the air so that the wind carries away the chaff. Now imagine how long it would take to beat out wheat in a wine press, but that's, that's where Gideon was in his life. He is resorting to beating out his wheat in a wine press because he's so scared that the Midianites are going to see him and come down and take his wheat, his harvest, and even kill him in the process. So our first glimpse of Gideon is a man who is fearful and hiding from the enemy, defeated and discouraged, and understandably so to some degree, but not really the kind of person that you would deem a valiant warrior. We also see a guy who lacks trust in God. I mean, notice again his response to the angel of the Lord. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. 
Gideon takes issue with the angel's statement, the Lord is with you. If the Lord is with us, then why is this happening to us? If the Lord is with us, then why am I beating out wheat in a wine press? Of course, the Lord was always with them. What was the problem? They weren't with the Lord. You know, that was the issue. The Lord is with you. You're not with the Lord. Get back into compliance with Him, and things will shape up for you. Gideon needed reminding that God works in difficult times, in difficult situations, even if those difficult situations and those difficult times are self-inflicted. You see, their spiritual nearsightedness had blinded them to the whole picture. And Gideon and the Israelite people were so focused on their circumstances that they forgot their theology. Now, in verses 14 through 16, God lays out the mission for Gideon. And just like Moses, the excuses start to flow, don't they? My family is poor. My tribe is weak. I am the least in my father's house. I'm totally unqualified. In other words, Gideon says, you got the wrong guy. I don't know who you were hoping for, but I'm not him. It's as if Gideon is accusing God of being a poor talent evaluator. But this mission had nothing to do with talent. It had very little to do with Gideon at all and everything to do with God. There's a biblical formula that we see expressed throughout Scripture over and over again, and it's this. Me plus God equals a superpower. You see that over and over again, especially in the Old Testament. Me plus God equals a superpower. It's a winning formula. Gideon needed to do his math. He needed to know his place. He thought he knew his place. He thought his place was the bottom rung on the ladder. God, however, was calling him to something higher. He just needed to trust and be convinced. Look at verses 22 through 24. When Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abizrites. So the metamorphosis had already begun. Gideon built an altar to God while tearing down his father's altar to Baal. He wasn't a valiant warrior yet. It wasn't a complete change just yet. I mean, he did this at night, so he was still afraid of getting caught. But still, we can see that Gideon's focus is changing. His trust is growing. His character is transforming. And, you know, we just went through an elder selection process. And I think about Gideon every time we go through a process of appointing elders. I have been privileged to serve with a lot of great elders, including the ones that I've served with so long here. And I've been a part of a lot of elder appointment processes. And inevitably, during that process, you'll talk to one or two guys, although I don't think we had that issue uh, here this time at Oldham Lane. But a lot of times in the past, you'd talk to at least one or two guys that would say, well, I don't really desire the office. And if I don't desire the office, I don't need to be an elder. And I get that. I understand that. But I always think about Gideon. I always think about Moses. They didn't desire the office, and God didn't let them off the hook. And with elders, it's kind of a weird deal, isn't it? We want you to desire the office, but we don't really want you to desire the office. If you desire it too much, we don't really want you, but we want you to desire the office. So it's a little bit strange. It's a little bipolar. But at the same time, to say, well, I I don't desire the office, I'm out. Well, Gideon didn't either. Moses didn't want to do the task that he'd been called to do. I think in some churches, we may have guys that they're the only one qualified. And maybe God's calling them to a task that they need to 
to do whether they really want to do it or not. I think about that sometimes. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I never want to guilt anyone into being an elder, but I do think that we should consider Gideon before choosing not to serve based on a, a sheer lack of desire. Look with me at Judges chapter 7 now, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him got up early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to hand Midian over to them. Otherwise, Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has saved me. Now, therefore, come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and worried is to return and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 from the people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. So it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But every one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, you shall put everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps in one group, and everyone who kneels down to drink in another. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will save you with the 300 men who lapped and will hand the Midianites over to you. So have all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets in their hands. And Gideon dismissed all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So Gideon's men were like the swarm of locusts. 135,000 of them. And so God tells Gideon to call all able-bodied men, and wouldn't you know it, 32,000 show up, which is a great number. Hardly enough, really, to go against 135,000, especially when you consider how powerful the Midianites were and how much of a mental edge they had over the Israelites. But to God, 32,000 was too many. So he whittles it down to 10,000, then he whittles it down to 300, and he says, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the group that you need. That's all you need to go against the Midianites. So Gideon is going to go into battle outnumbered 450 to 1. But again, it was Gideon's faith that was going to achieve the victory and allow him to pull off the greatest upset. Gideon had to understand that the size of the enemy was insignificant when you have God on your side. Notice verses 19 and following. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle night watch when they had just posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three units blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And each stood in his place around the camp. And all the army ran, crying out as they fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the entire army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerareh, and as far as the edge of Abel Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take control of the waters ahead of them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned and they took control of the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And they captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. 
And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb, while they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. So, long story short, Gideon and the 300 defeat the Midianites. And it wasn't even a fair fight. They sent them running in the other direction. The opposition of 135,000 were running for their lives. But their success, the Israelite success, wasn't based on personal achievement or Gideon's mastery of the leadership process. Their cry of victory was made possible by Gideon's dependence on God. And that's why his name is among the Faith Hall of Famers in Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 32 through 34, it reads, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness we were made strong, became mighty in war, but foreign armies put foreign armies to flight. When we first meet Gideon, he's stomping out wheat in a wine press. And his story closes with him living up to the title of valiant warrior. And that's what Gideon was. He was a valiant warrior. He was a farmer first. God calls him to be a valiant warrior. But God doesn't say, the Lord is with you, O industrious farmer. That's not what he says when he calls him. Just as he if he spoke to us today, I don't, I don't think he would come to James and say, the Lord is with you, successful pharmacist. The Lord is with you, Tim, old retired principal. You know what I think he would call us? I think he would say to every one of us, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Because that's what you are. Each and every one of us is in a fight for our lives. And it's not just for our souls, it's for the souls of those around us, right? There's a battle raging. And Satan has his weapons of mass destruction pointed directly at each and every one of us. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean he gives up on you. He continues to fight, and we have to continue to fight as well. It takes a warrior to defeat the devil. It takes a warrior to overcome the odds. It takes a warrior to beat doubt and shame and hurt and heartache. It takes a warrior to win the day. And the good news is you're a warrior in the greatest army with the greatest weapon at your disposal. You cannot lose. Unless you fight without faith, you win this thing. So I, I just want to encourage you, as you leave here tonight and you begin you know, your work week and, and school and all that, I, I want to encourage you to keep fighting. And for some of you, it's really hard to keep fighting. Some of you are wounded. Many of us feel more like a loser than we do a winner. A lot of us feel defeated right at this moment. And all I can say to you is just keep fighting. No matter how hard it is, just keep keep fighting. I had a coach that used to say, play till the whistle blows. Just play till the whistle blows. No matter how hard it is, you're limping, you're hurting, you're sore, whatever, just keep fighting. And for the rest of us, look around you, and if someone is wounded, pick them up. You may have to carry them for a little while, but that's our job as well. Many of us are going to be wounded warriors. Just keep fighting. Dave's got a song If we can help you tonight, if we can pray with you, 
we can support you in something. If, if you want to study the Bible with someone, let us know. If you want to become a child of God tonight, you want to put on Christ in baptism, then do that as well. Don't leave here without being right with God, but for all of us, leave here tonight ready to fight. Come as we stand and as we sing.